The first time I saw porn, I was 11. Someone's brother showed me two girls, one cup. If you're a millennial, you'll already know the internet phenomenon I'm talking about. It was a fetish video involving two women and a cup filled with fake poop. Two Girls, One Cup is a perfect characterization of how unregulated the internet was for us growing up. We were the first generation to have it during our teens, and our parents had no idea what it was. They barely knew how to use mobile phones. I started masturbating when I was 12 and worked out how to make myself have an orgasm at 13. And by 14, I was watching porn nearly every day. But here's the thing. Even though I started having penetrative sex at 18, I didn't have an orgasm with a partner until I was 23, five whole years later. I had spent so much time watching people have sex online, but it was all about men. What men like, how men orgasm. So, how has the internet changed the way we learn about sex? For good and for bad. I'm Lily O'Farrell, aka Vulgar Drawings, and this is No Worries If Not, a deep dive into women and internet culture. Episode 4 The Pleasure Gap Learning About Sex Online. When I first started having sex but couldn't reach an orgasm, I started confiding in my female friends. A large portion of them were like, oh yeah, I don't come during sex either. Maybe they would during oral sex, but rarely during penetration. And if they did, it was a rare occasion. Something to be celebrated like a secret mystical creature that appears once every 100 years. Then I spoke to a friend who was gay and she asked, well, how do you make yourself come when you're alone? I told her I use a bullet, AKA a small vibrator. She told me her and her girlfriend use toys almost every time they have sex. It's not a big deal. She couldn't understand why straight people were so weird about it. So I started introducing my vibrator into the bedroom with the men I was sleeping with. And oh my God, I was having more orgasms than my body could keep up with, I swear. And I realized, oh, this is what sex is supposed to be like. This is what all the fuss is about. The movies, the song lyrics, suddenly it clicked. But I was still left scratching my head. My straight female friends talked about the lack of orgasms we were all having, like it was just a fact of life, something that was inevitable. Has anyone been looking into this? What we know about orgasm comes from a selection of studies which all found similar findings, which we now know collectively as findings around the orgasm gap. What these findings showed us is that there are differences in the orgasms that people have when they have sex with a partner. This is Dr. Karen Gurney, a psychologist and psychosexologist. Just like me, she's interested in the pleasure gap and how that affects women in particular. I wanted to learn more about her discoveries. These differences often disadvantage cis heterosexual women more than anyone else when they have sex with men. So we know that when women have sex with male partners on a casual basis, they can expect to orgasm about 8% of the time. 
When they have sex with a regular male partner, they can expect orgasm about 65% of the time. When they have sex with a female partner, they can expect orgasm about 85% of the time. And when they masturbate, they can expect orgasm about 96% of the time. If you contrast this with men, we know that when men masturbate, they also orgasm about 96% of the time. When they have sex with female partners, they orgasm about 96% of the time. And men aren't always great at pleasing other men either. That's slightly lower for men who have sex with men. It goes down to about 87% of the time. But really, the orgasm gap is about patriarchy and how it shows itself in the way that we think about sexual pleasure. Okay, so it's not just me. And it's certainly not just my friends. The orgasm gap is a big deal. But what is happening during sex? What's been lost in translation here? Karen says it's partly to do with how we're socialised. As women, the message is, you have sex done to you. You're not an active participant. The way we learn about our bodies and that parts of our bodies that are pleasure-giving, like the clitoris, just aren't named. I have this all the time with women I work with. They don't even know a lot of the time that their clitoris exists. And they actually feel quite angry when they learn that in their 20s or 30s and they're like how has nobody told me this I was chatting to a doctor at work the other day and we were talking about the fact that it's not even in the medical curriculum that even doctors that work in sexual health don't get taught about the full structure and anatomy of the clitoris to the level that we could do with people knowing the first time I heard about the orgasm gap I was evangelical about it and I told everyone I met but for Karen our premium psychosexologist She's hardly surprised. The education around sex in and out of schools is abysmal. I think there's something about if you don't know that that's there and that it's equivalent in function and structure in terms of pleasure to the penis, then how can you know that the way in which, as a society, we see sex... But if you don't question that and you just think, well, that's what sex is and you don't know where pleasure sits in your body then of course there's going to be huge orgasm gap. For most millennials, if you ask them about their sex education, they'll say it was a few hours and pleasure was barely covered. Queer sex wasn't even acknowledged. Instead, I learned about gay sex from online porn, which is far from accurate. It wasn't until I got social media that I first discovered the guardian angels of sex education. Amazing people who were teaching us everything we should have learned at school, but didn't. And they were doing it online for free. Angels like Scotty Unfamous. We're taught that sex is more of like a duty or something that is done to you rather than something that you're doing with someone. Like our sex ed was, you're getting pregnant, here's your period, <laughs> don't get an STI, that was about it. Scotty is an erotic romance author and sex educator. She teaches people how to have great sex and how to masturbate too, because not everyone picks that up naturally like moi. So the workshops are called How to Live Your Best Whole Life, which is basically just helping you to have the kind of sex that you want to have. The tantric workshop that I do is about, as you said, you know, when we go to nah, have a wank, <laughs> it's very kind of like get in there, get it out of the way. But because so many women and people with vulvas struggle 
with orgasming. The whole point of this is to get them to be in their body and to be mindful of it. And to, like you said, like romance yourself, like take your time. I masturbate for like four hours. If you think about the fact that the clitoris is still a taboo subject, you can't blame women for struggling to even know how to start masturbating. And we're hardly fed an accurate depiction of the female orgasm either. In movies, when a woman is masturbating, she's usually lying on her back, fully clothed, carefully gliding her fingers into her underwear as violins play and rose petals fall from the sky. Then she has this explosive orgasm in 10 seconds and the scene ends. And just like most online porn, the videos that focus on female masturbation aren't that much better. Here's Dr. Karen Gurney again. You know, if you think about how we learn about sex, it's the one thing in our life that we don't learn from really watching the people closest to us do. So we learn about diet and eating and food from eating with our families, from seeing what they eat, from preparing food with them. We learn about it from the people that we trust the most. But with sex, we don't. We learn about it from social media, from porn, from television. I thought about how growing up, Every time I had a question about sex, there were 101 reasons why I was better off keeping my mouth shut. It's incredibly hard to shake off the patriarchal messages we're socialized with. Karen told me just how common this is, with something called the National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, or NATSAL. Oh, the NATSAL study is huge because there are lots of surveys of sexual behaviour that happen everywhere over the world, but the one we have here in the UK is the biggest in the world. And so it happens a bit like a census, it happens every 10 years. When straight women's attitudes to sex were researched, it revealed just how conditioned we really are. The study found that over 50% of women want to have more sex than they are currently having. But when it came to the issue of not having an orgasm, women were more worried about how addressing this problem would affect their partner, rather than worrying about themselves. A lot of this is about not wanting to bruise the man's ego. And to their credit, there is a certain pressure and expectation on men to be sexual wizards, to know exactly where everything goes and to be totally dominant. But if women aren't even taught that they have a clitoris, how on earth are men meant to know? It's important to not overlook the fact that a lot of cishet men actually don't feel that confident with how their sex life is or their sexual skills. I don't like to call them skills because it's not really a skill, but they see it very much as sexual skills. And I think there's a lot of reasons why we might say, you know, cishet men need to do better, but also it's important to look at where they feel underconfident. And I think giving pleasure or helping somebody achieve pleasure is an area where sometimes people feel drastically underconfident. When I started introducing sex toys to the men I was having sex with, I was really worried that it would be awkward too. But to my surprise, the response was nothing but positive. Good sexual partners are invested in your pleasure. They want you to show them how you get off. Karen said there's actually no evidence that men dislike toys. And with the couples she's worked with, they are always up for it. I've never come across a male partner who's been against the idea. If anything, it's better for everyone because it brings pleasure for everyone. It diversifies the sexual experience, which makes sex less boring, which makes it easier to maintain desire. 
I've always thought how someone reacts to introducing a toy is an incredibly good test for what kind of partner this person will be long term, which is something I spoke about with Reed Amber too. She's another amazing sex educator, and you can find her all over social media spreading messages about why pleasure needs to go hand in hand with sex. I cannot achieve an orgasm, a clitoral orgasm, without a fucking toy. Sure, if you've been able to unlock G-spot orgasms, that's amazing, good for you, but not everyone can do that. It's quite rare for a lot of women to do that. To be specific, around just 18% of women can orgasm from penetrative sex alone. 82% of women need clitoral stimulation too. So clitoral orgasms is where we need to focus our attention on. Sex toys aren't scary. Sex toys complement men. Reed is also a sex worker, so she knows the sex industry inside out. It took me a long time to be able to experience pleasure when I was with somebody else, especially a man. I was still so obsessed with making the man come. And that was my goal. My goal wasn't my own pleasure. My goal was making sure that he had a good time. Again, through porn. So porn is so centric around male pleasure. It even, I mean, I've, I've worked in the adult industry, in the porn industry for over 10 years now, doing every single role you can imagine, up to director, camera operator, video editor. And it, the male pop shot was the most important part of the whole shoot. A pop shot is a close-up of a man coming, like the actual ejaculation. Don't worry, I didn't know what it meant either. Reed said, yes, men should be actively learning more about women and sex, but you, the woman, should also be asking for what you want. Stop being a passenger and take the steering wheel. We don't push for what we want. So... If you are not having an orgasm during your sex, the responsibility is not just on him. It is very much on you as well. You are the one that's supposed to have the conversation and explain that you aren't having an orgasm. Can we try it slower? Can we get this toy out? Can we maybe do something else? Is it okay if you just eat me out until I come and then we have sex? I mean, women have so many ways to orgasm and it's magical. That's easier said than done, right? Taking control and asking for what you want is the total opposite of how we're taught to behave as women. Me and Scotty spoke about my long journey to orgasm town and how dissatisfied and uncomfortable I felt along the way. She told me how, at her workshops, most of the questions women ask are around being self-conscious in the bedroom. A majority of the time it's like, I feel uncomfortable in the bedroom. You know, I don't know what to do with myself. I look ugly when I put myself in this position. <laughs> like, what position is the most flattering? That's the main thing. Surprised? I wasn't either. I've heard friends say they don't like being on top, not because it doesn't feel good, but because it will show off their double chin. Or how they worry about sitting on a guy's face, even if they know they'll like it. It says so much about how we see ourselves as objects of the male gaze. But we know that, right? Now I'm wondering, how do we break the cycle? Like, how do we change this? Karen told me about something called porn literacy. For me, good sex education, including education about porn, starts with porn literacy. You know, I've got two boys, two young kids, so for us it's about starting really young with them, about getting them to critically evaluate things they see on television. 
is it real, that car crash, or did they make it, like, with stunts and props and CGI and getting them to realise that not everything you see is real? Sex education clearly still has a long way to go in the UK. But is it getting better? I think so. Mostly because of independent organisations who go into schools. Organisations like Split Banana. Split Banana delivers relationships and sex education across many different secondary schools and sixth form. We also train teachers and do consultation work to support schools to develop a whole school approach and improve their sex education. About a year ago, I was walking down the street and this woman on her bike waved me down and introduced herself. She had a gorgeous sunny smile and said that she liked my cartoons and that she worked in sex education. We exchanged details. This woman is Tasha Mansley, a facilitator at Split Banana. So one of my roles is facilitating the workshops, which essentially just means, yeah, going to schools, usually delivering like a day of workshops to a year group or like a series of different topics. Body image, gender, consent, porn, sex and intimacy, intimate relationships. Tasha covers a lot of stuff with Split Banana and it's tailored according to the age of the young people. One of the things they do cover, though, is porn literacy. Our porn workshop really tries to situate porn within media in general because we understand that not everyone in a classroom will be engaging with porn and not everyone who is engaging with porn will want to admit in front of their peers that that's something they watch or enjoy. So we try and kind of think about more like the skills that we want. The workshop's kind of built on like what skills do we want these young people to develop in order to have a more media literate, critical relationship with pornography. Interestingly, she said it isn't effective for adults to tell kids what's right and what's wrong, because if they're already consuming porn, it just creates shame. It doesn't really work when adults just go into a space and are like, this is what I think. Porn is bad and misogynistic. Don't watch it. I just don't think it works. <laughs> you know, research backs that up as well. It creates like a sense of antagonism. It creates a sense of distance. And people who already agree with you already agree with you. So not really much learning has happened. Whereas I think the aim of our workshop when we're talking about porn is to, we first invite reflection on where do we learn about sex in general? So that includes like music, lyrics, TikTok, TV series, parents, playground banter, school, porn. For me, probably loads of it came from watching Skins, Twilight, The Notebook, classic canon of, you know, naughties, girly. It's massively impacted the way I relate to people, the sort of expectations I have on romantic partners. Tasha says something that's helpful is reminding people that porn is an industry. We talk about like the history of the industry and how it is set up for the male gaze in order to make money. And because it is there in order to make money, more and more extreme content will be shown in order for a consumer to click on that content to generate income. One of the other things that we feel is like important to draw attention to is that it's just not real. Like what you're seeing is not real. And by not real, it's not meaning that it didn't happen, but just looking very neutrally at the fact that it's a film that has been edited together. And so there might be 
what looks like a seamless sexual act that happened in five minutes actually took a day to shoot with loads of extra lube and drugs and um, steroids and things that will make something that is actually impossible to enact in reality look real and seamless. I feel like for people who didn't grow up with the internet, there's a tendency to view the online world and the real world as totally separate. But that's just not the case anymore. The internet is affecting culture and politics faster than a lot of us can keep up with. But it's not all negative. I really noticed that social media was an amazing resource in terms of people had learned a lot of their vocabulary from social media but also found community there. One of the things I've really noticed change over that time is how the LGBTQ community is conceptualised. I feel like when I started, there was a sort of assumption that everyone in the room would be straight, apart from some people who were out. And I was getting loads more questions five, six years ago about how do you come out and how would you come out to your parents or how do you come out of school and this was from like six formers then maybe three years ago I was starting to get more questions or comments about like why does someone need to come out in the first place what is this out and in thing and why is there the assumption that we're straight to begin with and people having more vocabulary around that Thankfully, sex educators like Banana Split are doing the Lord's work by teaching young people about so much more than just penetrative sex. Our alternative approach is that we just teach that there's like different sexual acts and there's different intimate parts of the body that can come in contact with each other. We can think about what happens when two different body parts come together, you know, and we might talk in terms of intercourse and outer course. So there's things where, you know, you can put fingers into a body, you can put mouth on the outside of the body. Sex is not as rigid as we were led to believe as teenagers. Do you remember bases? First base is kissing and touching over clothes. Second base is fingering and hand jobs. Third base is oral and fourth base is penetration. There's lots of disagreement about what base means what, but regardless, it's a strict method of measuring sexual acts, with penetration as the holy grail. But Tasha said the base method doesn't reflect that some people attach different levels of intimacy to different acts. For some people, oral sex would be like feel way more intimate. For some people, they might always be in straight relationships but never enjoy penetration. And sex toys can be included in that. Dr. Karen Gurney said she gets a lot of questions from her clients about the sort of porn they're watching online, specifically women. I think there is one that comes up for me a lot, and it comes up a lot through my Instagram as well, which is women who identify as straight that only fantasize about women or only watch porn that's women having sex with women. That comes up all the time, and it's super normal, but people have quite a lot of worries about that. People message me all the time. Does this mean that I'm actually gay? What does this mean about me? I'm like, look, it's novel. It's showing the type of sex you prefer. It's different. It's sometimes about different power dynamics. It's not so glaringly unethical at times. Like, There's many reasons why this is something that works for you. It is true that lesbian porn usually feels less violent. So watching it as a woman isn't as confronting. It also says something about desire and that straight women are seeking something else outside of sex with men. My clinic is full of women having sex with men that just don't feel like it anymore. 
Which is why I wrote the book, because actually there's so much about desire that people just don't understand if they did understand that they could be having more desire. But it's also so much about gender inequality. So much of it is about what sex looks like, how enjoyable sex is, how sex has become quite predictable. It always follows the same pattern, it always ends in the same way, it always privileges someone else's pleasure, which isn't theirs. Straight porn could certainly learn something from lesbian porn when it comes to female desire. But if porn just isn't your thing, there are other avenues too. Scotty Unfamous told me about something called tantric sex. It's basically incorporating things like massages, focusing on your breathing and eye contact, like some kind of meditation practice. Then you purposefully delay your orgasm because the build-up is just as important. I think that there should be like more stuff around that tantra pushed into like mainstream, especially if it's with casual sex. People really take the time to connect to each other before they actually go and do the act. It's kind of like, we know what we're here for. Even if you're in a relationship sometimes, we know what we're here for, let's just get to it. And it's like, well, no, because sex could be so much better if we actually made that bond first and then went into it and actually paid attention and was attentive to each other rather than, oh, this is what I think I should be doing. Sexual content online is opening new doors for young people. I mean, who knows? Maybe if I knew what tantric sex was at 18, I wouldn't have gone five years without an orgasm. But what is it actually like for those on the other side of it? People like Reed who are making the content. There's two sides of this coin because we are giving this information out for free, as you said, because we want to help people. We want to help people get to the place that we are now where we feel comfortable and supported and great around sex. But it comes at a cost, especially with sex content, where you are constantly blacklisted, taken down, told by big companies that what you're talking about needs to be banned and hidden. And that just compacts more of the shame on top of things. I've lost my account eight times. Reed said male sex educators online don't seem to be facing this same censorship issue. It's when women are outwardly sexual that it's a problem. I do see a lot of men talking about sex and I don't think they come up with the same kind of issues that we do. I feel like because we are female or maybe we take a feminine form, that already means people see us in a sexualized light, especially sex workers. The issue is, whether it's porn or sex work, the moment you banish it into the shadows, you're making it unsafe. Porn and sex work are not going away, despite what some right-wing commentators might tell you. Reed has had to adjust how she works because she can't find support for women like her online. If I can't use my online platforms to talk about my work, to book in clients, a huge part of the safety comes from if someone comes to me through Instagram, I have a profile there. I can see what they're like and who they are. Of course, they might be an anonymous profile. But when I'm pushed off of social media platforms, that might push me into unsafe areas. Like, for example, which is illegal in this country, catcalling and standing on the curb. I'm in a very privileged position as a sex worker where my sex work is a choice. I love what I do. I enjoy what I do. I always have done. 
a lot of people ban sex work in with the unsafe aspect or with what's worse is trafficking. And I want to make it very clear they are two extremely different things. Stopping sex work will not stop trafficking. Sex work is legal. Trafficking is illegal. Trafficking is taking away the choice from somebody. But most of the sex workers that I know and the, se- the people in the sex industry, they are there by choice and they love what they do. Since people started campaigning for porn literacy in schools, some news outlets took it and ran. The way they saw it, sex-crazed woke activists were making ludicrous claims. But what porn educators are really saying is, let's talk about porn in the classroom so young people know something like choking shouldn't be practiced unless done consensually and safely. Reed went on Talk TV, a right-wing news channel, to talk to Jeremy Kyle about this. These acts aren't even something we should be avoiding. They're stuff that we, a, a lot of us enjoy. Choking and gagging. I'll take you up on that. You, Gina, can't, tell I, me. you can't tell me you haven't done any of that in your sex life. <laughs> it's all been, you know, you've been completely... Listen, I'm not, I, listen I, I haven't got... Reed faced some robust opposition from Kyle, but handled it brilliantly to make her point. I nearly spat out my drink when she called Jeremy Kyle vanilla. She's my hero. And she's totally right. Kids will find a way to watch porn online. Whether it's fake IDs or using someone else's account, porn will always exist. But giving people the education around it is a long-term solution. I asked Tasha Mansley if she, as one of these educators, has had any pushback. There's a history of relationships and sex education where it often becomes like a battleground for bigger moral panics of the time. What can happen when adults panic is that there's like a lot of fear and that becomes this kind of thing of like, we have to protect the young people from this scary thing. But that fear becomes displaced and it leads to quite reactionary policy where it's a lot about telling people like, this is how to think, don't do this, don't do that, rather than thinking more about skills and thinking about how could relationships education be developing the skills for healthier relationships. It's been interesting to notice that there becomes a kind of atmosphere of tension during the weeks where there is a lot of blow up in the media, which I think just shows how powerful those narratives can be because people aren't necessarily like worrying about it before. I've heard of parents who pick up on this moral panic discourse, but what about the kids? What I noticed in this last year of there being these kind of like media panic and big conversations around trans existence, questioning the validity of trans existence and things like this. I've noticed that trans or queer young people enter the sessions with more trepidation, but also leave the sessions with like a ton of relief and often come up to speak one-to-one and being like, in this climate, I was so worried that this would be another really exclusionary experience. I wasn't going to come into school today because I was worried about this or I was really braced myself to just have a really horrible time. And actually, I felt so included in this and I felt really seen and I didn't feel like an add-on. And those moments make it like completely, completely worth it for me. The thing is, though, as far as I'm concerned, inclusive education around sex and gender identity benefits everyone. And Tasha has seen this too. No one ever at the end of a session comes up and says, 
oh, I think that was too gay. You know, <laughs> I think the straight people in the room are like, oh, great, I can do other stuff too. <laughs> like you're not excluding anyone by saying that, by talking about different body parts and talking about different sex acts as not like exclusive to one group or another, you're really just including more people. No one is excluded by that. At the end of their sessions, Tasha said they have time for anonymous questions. I asked Tasha, what are the most commonly asked ones? What is average size penis? Is it bad to have a small penis? Questions of that nature. Short answer is, it's not bad to have a small penis. And usually I don't give the average penis size, but more flip it and be like, why do you think there's such emphasis on penis size? How has penis size been equated to someone's virility, masculine worth, status? Why are penises so big in porn? Other questions are, thinking about virginity, do you lose your virginity if you have lesbian sex? So then we kind of have a couple of amazing conversations potentially there about the pseudoscience behind virginity as like the sort of myth of this perfect hymen, which is unbreakable. And then you have sex and it breaks and you're supposed to bleed during the first time. It's supposed to feel uncomfortable and all of these, these narratives. And depending on the environment and age, sometimes we can get into deeper conversations around how virginity has historically been used to police women's sexuality. Tasha said the young people she's been doing these sessions with are wise, mature, empathetic and totally underestimated by adults. Clickbaity headlines about teaching kids how to choke each other is part of this naivety adults have around how clued up young people actually are. Unlike in my own sex ed, they're incredibly concerned about consent. Tasha told me that another question which comes up a lot is... How do I check in with someone without it killing the mood or making it awkward? The things that I've learned from young people's conversations is that they know the obvious things. They know no means no and to not spike people's drinks and not violently harass someone. But the things that get raised when we have a safe enough space is like, okay, within a relationship, if someone is like, we haven't had sex in a bit and I really want to. And then you feel a bit bad because you're like, oh, well, they're really into it and I don't want them to leave me or get interested in someone else, but I'm not really that into sex right now. I'm not feeling that horny. And that's like an experience that I know lots of people can relate to. And there is a complex navigation of desires, emotions, consent, all of these things. And I think, especially with the sixth form groups that we were talking about, when people are actually in relationships and are having sex and they don't have a space to sensitively discuss that, I think that's where really high quality sex education can go. I started this episode so curious about how young people are learning about sex online. It feels like a minefield of information and content. But the plus side is that while there's way more porn, there's also so many more online communities. There's language to discuss fantasies and fetishes. There's open and honest communication about sexual health and relationships. The internet can be a huge educational resource and it's filling in the gaps left empty by poor education at school. Plus, social media is how I found Karen, Reed, Tasha and Scotty. And speaking of Scotty, I asked her to share her toy recommendations for beginners. I think wands are brilliant. 
I think that ones are better quality, they last longer. I mean, you can get good bullets, but I think ones are like the best starter toy. I just think you can do so much with them, like even as you kind of excel on your sexual journey, like you can buy furniture which you can shove ones into and hump and stuff. <laughs> For those who aren't familiar, wands kind of look like a miniature microphone. Often you can charge them instead of relying on batteries and part of why people like them is they're great for when you want your partner to use them on you too. For the men listening, you know how you have a drawer for your condoms and lube? Why not buy a wand to add to this collection? For visitors, when we go on dates with you, it'll save us having to carry a vibrator in our bag. Thanks for listening to No Worries If Not. Special thanks to Dr. Karen Gurney, Scotty Unfamous, Reed Amber, and Tasha Mansley. This is a Curly Media production. 